0: Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the option to get in fellowship. And then after I get through reading this introductory article, we probably ought to have uh, silent prayer again so that we can all get back in fellowship so i'm not sure i'm conflicted here that's a good new age postmodern modern term psychobabble i'm conflicted as to how to do this but we'll pray first and then we'll have to deal with reality okay let's pray Father, we are so grateful that we can be here this evening, that it is Your Word that truly enlightens every dimension of life. It is Your Word that gives us truth with a capital T, true truth, absolute truth, within which we can understand all the details of life and no area of intellection, no area of human activity is divorced from the uh, incredibly bright spotlight of Your Word. Our Father, as we continue our study tonight, we pray that you would help us to understand what we study. And further, we pray that, that we might be able to use the things we study to shape our thinking and understanding of issues that face our, our culture and our world today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Somebody sent me this an email the other day, and I read it and was uh, somewhat uh, shocked although not really, after what I said on Tuesday night talking about how we no longer have freedom in this nation, it's just a sham, we live under tyranny, uh, this came the next day, and so I thought I would read it to you. The source of this is the Illinois State Rifle Association. The headline for the article is, Confiscation of Registered Guns Begins in Illinois. The Chicago Police Department and the Illinois State Police have teamed up to make good on Mayor Daley's pledge that if it were up to him, nobody would have a gun. Daley and his elite CAGE, that's an acronym, C-A-G-E, uh, CAGE unit, are apparently taking advantage of gun privacy loopholes to pinpoint certain individuals for inclusion in the confiscation program. The ISRA, that's the Illinois State Rifle Association, is following up on leads in one case that has disturbing implications. An elderly first-generation Chicago resident was recently paid a visit by an Illinois State Police trooper. After asking to come inside the man's home, the trooper asked if the man owned a gun, to which he replied, yes. The question, then, is honesty the best policy? The trooper then directed the individual to surrender the firearm. Remember, this man has not done anything wrong, not violated any law whatsoever. The man complied with the officer's demand, and the trooper left with the gun. The story gets better. The gun in question was purchased legally by the man in the 1970s, shortly after he became a U.S. citizen. When Chicago's infamous gun registration scheme went into effect in the early 1980s, the man registered the firearm as per the requirement. However, over the years, the fellow apparently forgot to re-register the firearm and forgot to renew his Illinois uh, FOID card. I'm not sure what that is. So uh, fire, probably some sort of firearms identification card. So what does this all mean? In the last edition of the Illinois Shooter, we reported on the activities of a shady task force known as the Chicago Anti-Gun Enforcement. That's CAGE. The Chicago Anti-Gun Enforcement Unit. This elite squad, operated jointly by the Illinois State Police, the Chicago Police Department, and the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, supposedly exists to identify illegal gun runners. However, information gained by the uh, ISRA makes it clear that the CAGE unit is targeting law-abiding citizens, not criminal gun runners, thanks to a ruling by a liberal federal judge. This cage unit now has the name of every single person in the United States who since 1992 lawfully purchased more than one handgun in the period of a week. The cage unit also has all the makes, models, and serial numbers of those guns. In essence, the Chicago Police Department is now registering guns and gun owners nationwide. The ISRA has also learned that the CAGE unit has compiled a list of families where more than one person in that family holds an FOID card. Acting on that information, the CAGE unit is now contacting gun shops where those families have shopped and is illegally registering all guns purchased by those families. Now it appears that the CAGE unit is scrubbing Chicago's gun registration list against the list of FOID cardholders. Indications are that folks who have let their registrations and FOIDs lapse will have their guns confiscated. We have to wonder how long it will be until state troopers show up at the doors to confiscate the guns of non-Chicago residents who have let their FOIDs expire. See, when law enforcement has no respect for the Constitution because the judicial system has no respect for the Constitution, because nobody knows how to apply... Literal, historical, grammatical interpretation to law anymore. Law becomes a very fluid. Whatever the you think, and I think, may think that the law actually says is just up for grabs, and it depends on how any uh, liberal judge can come along and redefine and reinterpret the law. He can make black mean white, and white mean black, and the result is a Continuation of judicial tyranny brought about by liberals, not just Democrats, because there's some Democrats, there may be few. You know, there really is an N left out of that word Democrat. There are some Democrats who might be conservative, and there's a heck of a lot of Republicans who are liberal they're not moderate they're liberal most of these republicans that are running today i know i'm getting awfully political most of these republicans who are running today are to the left of john f kennedy in the early sixties and we wonder why things are the way they are and it's because everybody is affected by some sort of, uh, of non-literal subjective interpretation because they have bought the lie that the Constitution is a living document. And when you have Christians who can't interpret the Scripture literally, think that they're voting for anybody in the White House and that their Christianity influences their vote, they are as self-deceived as any liberal because Ninety-five percent of the subjective Christians that are out there today have no idea how to literally, correctly interpret the Bible. So how can they interpret anything when it comes to law? And that's why we have a president who continues to, you know, he has one or two good points, and the rest are just as bad as any Democrat because he doesn't understand absolutes. And unless we have any politician in office, who understands absolutes, we're in trouble. But they're a reflection. We get exactly what we deserve. They are a reflection of the culture, and we're getting exactly what we deserve, and we need to take warning as believers. This isn't getting better, and it's not going to get better. And it may be much worse. As I pointed out the other night, who would have thought that the U.S. Congress would even entertain uh, some of the hate speech legislation that they have voted in favor of to have the president sign. I mean, it's a direct violation of the of the Bill of Rights. And yet, again and again and again, we're going to see uh, reverse reasoning take place as subjective, emotional, postmodern liberal legislators call white, black, and black white. And the enemy in all this is going to be anybody who believes that there's anything that's absolute, especially if it has to do with God or religion. You just have that evil religion gene in your system, and you need to be uh, taken out and put into some kind of uh, concentration camp. Oh, we, we were wrong in doing that with the Japanese, but we'll be justified in doing it with Christians. Trust me, it's coming. Okay, we're in our study on Hebrews. Now, we ought to pause for about ten seconds, have silent prayer again, so everybody can get back in fellowship. Uh, We're in our study on Hebrews in Hebrews chapter uh, 7, 8 through 10. Don't turn there yet because we're just, that's our jumping off spot. We've been dealing with the whole issue of the origin of life. And we have one more passage to cover before we go to the next issue that comes out of these these verses in Hebrews 7, 8 through 10. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. We're in the midst, in Exodus chapter 21, we are in the midst of the Mosaic law, which provides the law code, the civil ceremonial code for the Jews in the land and it is an expression of the righteousness and the justice of God. It's based on what is known as case law. That means the Mosaic law does not address every possible instance in relation to specific uh, situations of legal violation, illegality, or criminality. It addresses it in the sense of giving examples within each category and then it would be up to the Jews as they develop their code of law to operate within that framework. That seems to be the policy God follows from the very inception in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, God initiates human vocabulary. He calls the light day and the darkness night. He begins to uh, identify certain creatures. He identifies the... Uh, sun, the moon, and other things. He initiates human vocabulary, but then it is up to Adam to carry on the process within the framework of what God has revealed. The same is true in the way God has revealed doctrine. God revealed doctrine in the, in the framework of different kinds of literature. You have historical narrative. You have poetry. Uh, you have different types of epistles and the Gospels. All these are different types of literature. God did not sit down and reveal to us a systematic theology. You don't open the Bible to page one and get prolegomena. You do if you open up Chafer's systematic theology or Burkhoff's systematic theology or any standard uh, systematic theology. But that's not how God did it. God did it in such a way that he encapsulates all of the categories of doctrine within different kinds of uh, of literature. You have a historical literature because it's the a man's purpose, or he, what he's designed for, the purpose for us to come along and to study and analyze the text, and then extrapolate from the text the categories and then to build and develop our understanding of the categories down through the years. In the same way that when Adam began to evaluate all the animals in the garden, he began to recognize that some were large and some were small, some had long necks, some had short necks, some flew, some didn't fly. And what he had to do was to organize the data, categorize it, classify it, and then come up with nomenclature, that was beyond what God had already initiated in order to uh, properly reflect the nature of all these different, different creatures. So you see this same pattern all the way through Scripture. God expects man to use the intelligence, the brain that God has given him within the framework of divine revelation in order to develop his thinking. In the same way with the believer, when you face problems in life, you know the, what the average believer wants to do is just pray to God and say, okay, give me an answer, and we expect something in the morning mail and what God expects for us to do is go to the scriptures and think deeply and profoundly about those scriptures and how they relate to what we're doing so that our mind is engaged in what God has revealed and there and under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit we begin to understand uh how to think and God's thinking and that's how wisdom is developed. Well, all of that fits within the basic way in which God reveals the revealed the Mosaic law. It doesn't t- I talk about every kind of situation, but it gives the parameters so that on the basis of case law, uh, other laws can be developed facing similar type circumstances. And that's the kind of thing that we have. In Exodus chapter twenty-one, there are different kinds of case laws set out here concerning uh, violence. If you look back in Isaiah, I mean, excuse me, Exodus twenty-one twelve, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely uh, be put to death. That's your basic principle of capital punishment. Capital punishment isn't grounded in the In the Mosaic Law, capital punishment is grounded back in the Noahic Covenant. But because it's God's principle for the era between the Noahic Covenant and the return of Christ, that is a standard procedure. But there are exceptions to this particular law. However, if if the person did not lie in wait... But God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. In other words, if it's not premeditated and it's accidental, then God sets up these, these, uh, cities of refuge where the, the person who committed manslaughter can flee and he can live within the confines of the, one of those cities of refuge. But if he ever comes out, then he's subject, uh, to the law, uh, Retaliation. Verse 14, if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. In other words, there's no sanctuary for him because of the uh, premeditation involved in that particular kind of murder. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. So if you have a, a parental abuse, then that is punishable by capital a punishment and the child's life should be taken in order to keep the cancer of um, of lack of authority orientation and rebellion keep that cancer out of the culture. It's interesting. I was uh, uh, talking to someone the other day, and uh, they were commenting on the fact they had been up at Dallas Seminary and talking to one of the counselors on staff up there, talking about one of the major problems coming into the seminary today with the young people coming right out of college is they don't have authority orientation. And because of that, they get into all kinds of personal moral problems and other problems that wouldn't have been a, a part of the package to the same degree uh, 20 or 30 years ago. But they have no concept of authority orientation. And so that's a problem that has to be uh, dealt with with students on campus. So. This is why God addresses the problem of the rebellious child so more, so so much. Uh, verse sixteen down through twenty give other other aspects. Uh, it's interesting. Look at verse twenty. Uh, verse twenty says, "If a man beats his male or female servant with a rod," something that would be considered quite. Uh, quite heinous in our society so that he dies under his hand he shall surely be punished uh, <clears throat> notwithstanding if he, if he remains alive a day or two he shall not be punished for he is his property now if you read that verse from the framework of the kind of liberalism that has influenced American thinking about slavery since uh, the early 1800s, then you're going to have problems interpreting that verse. Because again and again in in the Mosaic Law, God does something really funny. If a man owns, if, if I go out and I kill a Jew next door, and it's premeditated, then I'm supposed to come under capital punishment. But if the guy who lives next door is a Moabite, and he's not a Jew, or if he's a slave, then the punishment's different. He's still full human life. But see, God, God's not wrong in this. We have to come to the presupposition that, as Paul says in Romans 7, the law is holy and just and right. It's not wrong. Well, maybe our modern thinking is influenced by some false value system that is uh, applying this to, to these different situations. Slavery was authorized... In the Mosaic Law, God doesn't authorize sin folks. That's, a pre- that's what your presupposition needs to be. God doesn't authorize and validate sin. But the kind of slavery that was uh, that, that was practiced in Israel was a slavery that had a lot of outs. It had a lot of ways in which the individual slave could get out of it. He only stayed there for life if he chose to. That's why he was to uh, pierce his ear with an with an awl. as a visible sign that he had voluntarily chosen a life of, of slavery. But it was designed to provide a safety net for people who had used their credit cards too much and gotten involved in too much debt, and they couldn't get out of debt. So now they could volunteer they could they could indenture themselves. That's a word we would use and they would indenture themselves to a to a master and work off their debt and then at the end of 7 years or 5 years or 4 years or whenever the sabbatical year would come what would happen at the end of that that time period or, or actually the um, the year of jubilee when the year of jubilee would come at the at the 50th year all debts would be repaid they would become free and they could also work and buy their freedom back. So there were all kinds of ways. It wasn't the kind of chattel slavery that was practiced in the United States. That was a different kind of slavery. But the issue is that slavery per se is not in and of itself an evil. That's that's what you get from the people like Charles Grandison Finney, who's the real father of the abolitionist movement in America, because he didn't he, he had a bad theology, and we've gone over that before. He didn't believe that man was inherently a sinner, didn't believe in a, a uh, substitutionary atonement, believed that man was perfectible, and therefore society was perfectible. And the, what we have to do to perfect society is get rid of the big five evil sins of the 19th century, and that's still with us today. You have to get rid of slavery, and you have to get rid of child labor, and you have to get rid of uh, women have to be able to vote, and you have to get rid of the... Uh, evil alcohol and, and this was all part of the social scenario there so we have to look at the scripture and say the scripture gives us the framework for how law should function we don't start off in a, some sort of abstract idea developed from our culture and then come back and read that into the Bible and say oh well look uh, the uh, slave here is going to be uh, treated as property that 's wrong so well this this must be some just a barbaric law code that 's what liberals do liberal theologians that 's how they read this, and that 's why they come up with the idea that the the Bible is really just some historically developed uh, literature and and religion, just like every other religion, and so they're imposing uh, a Darwinistic evolutionary evolution of religion viewpoint on the scriptures. So all that just by way of introduction to get into our passage. In Exodus twenty-one twenty-two, we have one of the few passages that people go to to try to argue. that uh, that there's life in the womb and that this is the the best that you can come up with scripturally in a case that involves abortion. And if you look at the verse, in verse 22 it reads, If men fight and hurt a woman with child, so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Now, that is a translation from the New King James Version, and that is a superior translation to the one in the New American Standard. New American Standard, here's the slide, says if man, men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she has a miscarriage. See, there's the difference. If you see the NASB says miscarriage, but New King James says gives birth prematurely that's the more accurate translation because as i've noted in this particular slide the verb there is yatsah which is a standard verb for giving birth it's the same verb that's used of the birth of jacob in genesis 25:26. it's a verb that always indicates a live birth live birth birth means that the the baby comes out, takes a breath, and at that point, as we've studied, uh, receives the impartation of the soul, and at that point becomes uh, fully alive, fully ensouled. So the situation here is that uh, the men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she has a miscarriage, yet there is no further. And that word further, something happened here because I changed this up a little bit. The word further yeah, isn't in the Hebrew. Okay, I've got it there. It's not in the Hebrew in verse 22. It's not in the Hebrew in verse 23. Uh, it needs to be read, uh, Comes if there, if that child, let me just go to the correct translation from New King James, if that she gives birth perma- prematurely, yet no harm follows, the harm it, that comes to the child is post-birth harm. Harm. It's as a result of the situation the child, subsequent to birth, comes under some sort of injury. That's what the law is addressing, not what happens as a, a, in line with a, um, a a miscarriage causing the miscarriage and thus a, a not a live birth. So we're talking about a live birth here. This doesn't have anything to do, therefore. Uh, with uh, the subject of abortion. It has to do, though, with the value of life. Now, once the child is born, the child receives Neshema, the breath of life from God, and therefore the law related to the precious value of human life comes into, uh, comes into effect. And under the Mosaic Law, you have the principle it was known as lex talionis which is the law of retaliation of an eye for an eye and and so forth and this is what's explained in verse uh, 23 and following if there is any injury then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life eye for eye tooth for tooth hand for hand foot for foot burn for burn wound for wound bruise for bruise now that under the under the law is is Really, again, a figure of speech. We've been studying that. And uh, Sunday morning we studied figures of speech. It's the idea that the penalty fits the crime. The penalty fits the crime. Not that, oh, if I knock out your tooth, you have to in turn knock out my tooth. Because if you look at the scriptures, often there are financial penalties assessed for certain kinds of damage. So it's not it's not identical it has to be taken literally but the idea of uh uh retaliation in kind so that the punishment fits fits the crime and this should be assessed if there is subsequent damage these two men are fighting and they hurt a woman so if there's damage to the woman or there is injury to the to the child after birth then uh there should be Uh, the application of lex talionis okay that pretty much takes us through and completes our study on the origin of life so let's have a review here to go over some basic principles that we've gone through in our study first of all first point man is created in the image and likeness of God Genesis 1 26 to 27 this is your starting point is there is something unique about human beings they are distinguished From all other creatures because they are in the image and the likeness of God. That is fundamental. And we have to understand as we went through this that this doesn't involve simply the soul. This is talking about the totality of man. Those words that are used there in the Hebrew as I I, uh, developed when we went through the passage were words that typically were used in the ancient world in covenant context. And remember, Genesis 1, 26 to 28 is part of a covenant context, part of the uh, creation covenant. That in those contexts, this word is used of a representative of a king. That's what's happening with man. He's being created as God's vicegerent to rule and reign over creation as his representative. So he is designed to represent God as the king of the earth. Now, he's going to fail, but that's the original intent, and so it applies not only to the, to the uh, immaterial part of man, but also to the material part. Now, I'm not saying that God looks like man with uh, two eyes and two ears and ten fingers and ten toes. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that man is designed to represent God, so that when we come to Hebrews ten five, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who says, when at the time of the incarnation, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And I made the point there that we have to come to grips with is when God is sitting there, anthropomorphically, when God is sitting there, in Genesis 2-7, and he's uh you know playing with the uh, clay that that is going to be the body of the man he is thinking 4000 years ahead to the fact that he, the second person of the Trinity is going to be incarnating himself into this body. So whatever the body looks like, however it's shaped, whatever its capabilities are, it's got to be the highest and best form for the function of revealing eternal God to finite mankind. God just doesn't pick this shape out of some... by. by tossing the dice and just saying, well, it seems like a good idea. I think we can cause a few things to happen. He is intentionally choosing this form, this shape, this structure, because the infinite second person of the Trinity is going to uh, incarnate himself, going to become finite and express and reveal the deity, the essence the attributes of God through this finite representation. And that's the same thing that Adam is. That's this whole thing we're going to get into with the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam is designed to represent God. He fails. The second Adam comes along and represents God, not just in terms of his internal attributes, but also in terms uh, externally. He is a physical representation of God. This idea that minimizes uh, the the body comes out of platonism in platonism as we studied you have this uh, idea that matter is inherently evil that which is spiritual the ideal that's that's what's best and so in platonism matter was evil now when neoplatonism came along and affected Uh, Christian thought they knew that matter was good because at the end of Genesis 1 when God has created the material world the material universe he says it's all good so we can't say that the material world is bad but it's not that important and so Neoplatonism led them to to stress the ideal stress the soul over the body stress the spiritual over the physical that led to all kinds of dichotomies in their thinking and led to all kinds of problems. What we have to do is rein that back in and recognize that throughout the Bible there is a emphasis on the physical, an emphasis on the material body, that this is why you have a physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. It's not this ideal idealized resurrection that occurs at the end of, uh, what was it, one of the movies, Zeffirelli's movie, Jesus of Nazareth, that came out in the late 80s, and they just hear this disembodied spirit because Jesus rose in your hearts. No, it is a physical bodily resurrection that the same body that was lying in the tomb is somehow changed to the resurrection body. That's why when when, uh, Mary Magdalene goes into the tomb, when Peter and John go into the tomb, what do they see? They see that the body that Jesus had in his uh, incarnation is gone. If God were giving him just a new body, he could have just given him a new body because body's irrelevant, but body's not irrelevant. What he had as a physical body prior to prior to the resurrection, is the same body. When it comes out of the tomb, the, the napkin that covered his head, the, the clothes that covered his body, they're gone. I mean, they're, I mean, excuse me, they're lying there just in the same place because the body's gone. The body is important. Now, Christians have done a terrible time, time through the centuries dealing with the importance of the body. This is why you know, Paul emphasizes this in different places in 1 Corinthians that the body is important it's not just the immaterial part the immaterial soul so we have to uh we have to surgically remove a lot of this cosmic thinking that comes out of human humanistic uh philosophy from our thinking it's it, it's impacted christianity way too much over the years so we recognize there's an importance on both the physical home for the soul it's very important God is directly involved in it, even though there are, it's, he does it through indirect processes. I pointed out as we went through all of those studies that many passages in Scripture state or express God's involvement of things with very direct terminology, even though God is using secondary means such as weather, uh, such as uh, he prepared a great fish to take. Uh, uh, Jonah back to the direction that he was supposed to go. Uh, he uses intermediate means. When we talk about being saved, we say, God saved me. Yes, but he used an intermediary to give me the gospel. He uses intermediate means, but yet we still speak as if God did it directly. So when uh, you have passages in Job, you have passages in Psalm 39 that talk about God forming the physical body, it stresses the importance of the physical body and its preparation. You can't just dismiss it as just a mass of um, cells and just, and blood and muscle and tissue. It is that which is going to form the home for, for the soul. It is a, a, an, I, an image bearer in the making. Second principle, the terms used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament emphasize that the parameters of life are birth and death, birth and death birth and death, birth and death not conception and we saw that the Jews the Israelites had a noun for conception and they very easily could have used a prepositional phrase from conception to express the beginning of life but they didn't they used this, rather a circumlocution that was an idiom for birth because they didn't have a noun for birth so they used the phrase from the womb And that phrase, from the womb, is recognized by numerous scholars from all manner of different uh, theological frameworks as being an idiom for from birth. So the parameters of life, once again, are from birth to death because birth is when the soul is imparted. Nowhere in the Bible is conception used as the starting point for life. Job uh, three, three is not talking about the starting point of life. It's talking about at conception, uh, the masculinity was known. Well, that's the physical life. doesn't say anything about the soul. Third point, Genesis two seven, which is when God makes the forms, the body of Adam, uh, that provides the framework for understanding the two components of human life, the physical body, the home for the soul, and the soul. Neither ever really exists autonomously apart from the other, no, as I said, autonomously, after you you have the soul as can't doesn 't ever exist without a body, you have an interim body between physical death and the rapture, and you have a um, you have then you have your resurrection body, but the soul always has a body soul can 't see hear, taste do communicate has nothing. Uh, by way of interaction with God or anything else without some form of body, even if it's uh, an immaterial body. There must be some form of, of a body. On the other hand, the body without the soul doesn't do anything. They, they are interdependent. So you both are important. Fourth point, life as we saw from Genesis 2-7 is indicated by breath and breathing. God breathes an anthropomorphism. God breathes into the body that he's prepared for Adam, and Adam becomes alive, literally, not living soul. We saw that that, that phrase is used of fish, it's used of birds, it's used of other beasts. Um, that hayah, nephesh Hayah indicates life. It goes from being in animate manner to animate matter. Now, that is a unique situation. That's not what happens Uh, to anybody else, because you have a process of the formation of the physical body that takes place in the womb, not out from the womb. And once the physical home is ready and prepared, then you have the impartation of of the soul. Fifth thing, John the Baptist is not an example of activity inside of the womb prior to birth, as we saw, the filling of the Spirit there is not the same as the Ephesians 5.18 filling of the Spirit, but it is, it is similar to the uh, the endowment that takes place in the Old Testament. And once again, the terminology there is ekkoilia, out from the womb, or from the womb, or from birth, literally as the NIV translates it there, it, it is, was going to be filled with the Spirit from birth. So it's not talking about activity in the womb. Six, As we just saw in Exodus, Exodus is talking about a post-birth problem, not an in-the-womb problem. Point seven. Conclusion. It's the same as what I said was the traditional Jewish position, and I read from the article in the Encyclopedia of Judaism several weeks ago that according to the rabbinical thought, according to... The Talmud, according to the tradition going back to at least to the time of Christ, if not before, the tradition was that the, an individual does, doesn't be, become an individual, a full human being, until birth, when it becomes nefesh. And it's not until then. But up to that point, it is a human being in process, and therefore the position that has always been taught in Judaism is you don't mess ...with what's in the womb... ...unless it's to save the life of the mother... ...because what you're messing with... ...is an image bearer in process... ...and only God has the right to interfere... ...and it may not be... Here's a, ...it may not be... ...it may not be uh, murder... ...but it's next to murder... ...it's not... Uh, ...it's immoral, clearly... ...sinful, yes... But it is not murder. And therefore, because it's not murder, it shouldn't be a part of law. This takes me to point eight. Since we can only know when the soul enters the body on the basis of revelation. You can't know it in the laboratory. There's no laboratory experiment known to man that can identify the presence of the soul. You can identify the presence of a heartbeat. You can identify the presence of various physiological activities, but you can't identify the presence of the soul through any kind of empiricism. You can only know that on the basis of of revelation. And since revelation can only be understood by believers, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. And if you trace that, a Greek word there for things all the way through that passage from about verse uh, chapter two verse eight all the way down to the end of the chapter it refers to the things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard neither is entered into the heart of man in other words it's talking about uh, knowledge and knowledge which uh, is not based on empiricism uh, that can't be derived from empiricism knowledge that can't be derived from from rationalism can only come from the Holy Spirit And since unbelievers have no access to, to data that comes only through revelation of the Holy Spirit that is revelation of scripture then they're not held accountable no one in the Old Testament is ever held accountable for uh, knowledge that is specific to revelation Never. There's not one example of that. Let me give you just a basic example of the kind of thinking that goes goes behind that. The Mosaic Law was given to the Jews. It wasn't given to the Moabites. It wasn't given to the Philistines. It wasn't given to the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans or the Greeks. And yet... Almost all of these people come under divine judgment in the major prophets. You go to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. There are burdens against the Moabites, against the Edomites. There are oracles of judgment judgments against the Philistines, against the Babylonians, uh, against all of these different people that surrounded Israel. God is bringing judgment against them. But he never once holds them accountable for anything that is unique to the Mosaic law. God lowers the boom on Israel because they violate the Sabbath. He never mentions the violation of the Sabbath when he deals with the the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the um, Tyre and Sidon or any of these other people. Why? Because God never made that part of the revelation they're answerable to. But the Gentiles are answerable to two things. They're answerable to general revelation, which according to Romans 1 is enough to hold every human being accountable for the knowledge of God. And so because every human being, once they reach the age of accountability, knows that God exists, they are held accountable for that. And so these nations are judged for idolatry. It goes back to the creation covenant, goes back to the Noahic covenant. They're also held accountable for their attitude to Israel, not because God revealed that to them, but because God promised that to Abraham. And he said, if anybody curses you, I will curse them. If anyone treats you with disrespect, literally, treats you lightly, I will treat them harshly. Two different words for cursing in that uh, anti-Semitic paragraph of the Abrahamic covenant. I'm just saying that to make the point that God never holds unbelievers accountable for that which they are unable to understand and learn. And if you can, and I read to you a section from a, an article from Harold O.J. Brown, who is one of the foremost evangelical theologians and uh, anti-abortionist and he basically throws up his hands and says we can't know when the soul gets there but but how could anybody possibly believe that the fetus could last all the way to birth without having a soul what's his frame of reference there what's his ultimate criterion his own rationalism it doesn't make sense to me that the fetus could go to birth without a soul. So therefore who would believe that? It's ridiculous. But he has no foundation for that. He has no empirical data for that. He hasn't even established a rational syllogism to support that. He has just argued it out of pure raw emotion. So the only conclusion we can come to is that potential life means sacred life. The image and likeness of God is a term that incorporates both the physical and the immaterial. It includes the whole dynamic that's there, and it's used that way. In fact, most of the places where those two words are used in the Bible, without exception, about 98% of the places where those two words are used, they describe a physical object. And Once again, I'm not saying that God exists. We're not Mormons. God doesn 't exist with in, in a in a man shaped body he is He is spirit, but we are saying that the physical part is very very much uh, very much important to to the whole imageness of God now that brings us to a conclusion of that doctrine, and now we're going to go into a new doctrine. We had to go through all of that because That doctrine, the origin and the transmission of the soul, is fundamental to understanding the next doctrine, which comes out of uh, our passage in Hebrews chapter uh, 7, verses 9 and 10. I thought I had it up there, but I don't. Hebrews 7, 9 and 10 says, Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, I translated that, Uh, a better translation would be, in a manner of speaking, that's up front in the Greek text, in a manner of speaking, alerting you, the reader, to the fact that what he is saying is not to be taken literally, but to be understood in a somewhat figurative sense. In a manner of speaking, even Levi, who received tithes, being the uh, progenitor of the Uh, of the tribe of Levi, but Levi himself never received tithes. It is the tribe of Levi as the priests that were the tithe collectors in the theocracy of Israel. So even that is somewhat of a figure of speech. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, uh, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. That's met Abraham, not met Levi, got to make sure you get the right antecedent on that pronoun. Now people go to, by people I mean theologians, go to this verse and they use that to support a view related to the origin and transmission, that's a key word is transmission of sin, what we would refer to as the imputation of Adam's original sin. They use that to support a view that is called seminalism. And seminalism always goes hand in hand with a tradition view of the origin and transmission of the soul. They, they connect because you have this physical transmission of the soul through the semen and then it is, uh, that seed, seminalism, that is the way in which the guilt of Adam's sin is passed on down through, uh, the generation. On the other hand, you have a view we'll get into in just a minute called federalism. And federalism is a view that, that Adam is, it's not a, a physically related thing. It is uh, a federal designation that Adam is designated as our representative. And so Adam's sin becomes our sin by representation. Now, these are very important concepts and over the next two or three weeks, we're going to try to break it down, help you understand this, because this is crucial to understanding Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, several other passages. So let's just get a little, little opening introduction this evening. What's important here is to try to come to grips with the uh, whole issue of how, uh, <clears throat> how the soul is corrupted. Because one of the questions that is raised is if God is going to create and impart the soul at birth, then how does it become sinful? God can't create a sinful soul. So how does that soul become corrupted and become sinful and become totally, totally depraved and come under, under condemnation? And so the answer that is proposed by traditionists is that, well, we're going to get God out of the picture. God's only involved uh, immediately through uh, for the body and the soul, and the, the sin nature's passed on physically, biologically, through procreation, just as the soul is. That's their solution to the problem. So we're going to get into issues related to Adam's original sin, related to the doctrine of imputation. Which of course is going to deal with not only the imputation of sin, uh, but the imputation of Adam's guilt to each one of us, the imputation of our guilt to Jesus Christ. See, all of this is related. You just thought the issue of the origin and transmission of the soul just had to do with, with, uh, how do people get souls? All of this is interconnected. That's what's so fabulous about studying theology is there's this whole web of interconnectivity between different concepts and different verses, and if you start changing one thing, it changes everything else, and you start having problems in different areas. And usually the way these kinds of things are set up in a typical seminary classroom or a theological uh, or a, uh, a systematic theology book is as if you're either or. You're either, uh, you either hold a creationism or traditionism. It's either the soul or the body. Remember that. Or your, uh, your seminalism or federalism. It's either the, the body or the soul. So you have this dichotomy. And and both sides can marshal a number of scriptures in support of their position, and so you come out of a typical seminary classroom, scratching your head and thinking thoughts similar to those expressed by Louis Perry Chaffer. That well, it could go either way, but I think I'm going to go this way. And that's how he handled the problem of creationism versus traditionism. He said, well, they're pretty close. There's a lot of verses on the side of traditionism, a lot of verses on the side of creationism, but I I, I guess I'm going to be a traditionist. 50.1% to 49.9%. And what happens is you have a lot of men come out of classrooms and they just think, well... And they become, they start becoming theological agnostics at that point. Oh, it's a very dangerous thing. They begin to think, well, if these double, triple PhDs that are teaching me in class can't, can't understand this issue, then it's really not uh, understandable. If they can't unscrew the inscrutable, then how can I, with no, nothing more than a master's degree, uh, unscrew the inscrutable? So, then, then what happens is the first domino in theological uh, agnosticism has developed, and before long you become a panmillennialist. You know, you can't decide whether you're premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial, so you're just a panmillennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> so, that, and that's dangerous because then, next thing you know, you're not clear on the gospel. As long as you do something with Jesus and, well, you know, we don't know which Jesus it is. Maybe it's Jesus the gardener or Jesus the ball player. But, but as long as you do something with somebody named Jesus, somehow that gets you into heaven. So you can invite him into your heart or walk the aisle or commit yourself. And, and it just leads to, well, you know, the only thing we can really know for sure is that we all have had this experience. So And, and God has done something for us. So let's all just get together put our arms around each other and have an emergent church and we'll just all feel good about God and God will be impressed that we feel so good about Him and about each other that that's got to get us some brownie points and nobody knows anything anymore. Okay. Our starting point on this is trying to understand Adam's original sin and how Adam's original sin gets transmitted to the entire human race so that all are guilty of Adam's sin. So we have to define Adam's original sin, first of all. Adam's original sin refers to the first act of willful disobedience to God committed by the first man, Adam, in the Garden of Eden. It's not Eve's sin. If, if Adam had resisted the temptation and only Eve had eaten of the fruit, then only Eve would have fallen. She would have gotten kicked out of the garden and God would have gone to plan B for a helpmate for Adam. Would have had the first divorce. But that didn't happen because Adam decided that the woman was more attractive than God, which has happened many times down through history. We're almost out of time, so I'm going to tell you another story. We'll get into this next time. I'll tell you one, one more story. This is just appalling to me. Women have such power. You don't understand that. Women have such power over, over men and over theology. Uh, one of the ways I first noticed this was in studying cults. It's amazing how many cults were started by women. But what's even more amazing is how many husbands got screwed up theologically under the influence and pressure of their wives. Back in the 1980s, there was a, a new uh, ick, act, or spasm in the uh, church, church age with the rise of what became known as the Vineyard Movement, the Signs and Wonders Movement. John Wimber, was um, he was a pastor out in Southern California. Originally, he was Quaker. He wasn't dispensational. I mean, he was dispensational. At least he said he... He just believed what the Schofield Reference Bible said. That doesn't make you dispensational. That just means you, you believe those those notes. But he didn't really understand it. He, anyway, to make a long story short, he became charismatic. But he becomes charismatic under the influence and pressure of his wife. But they're not classic Pentecostals or charismatics, because they believe that, that speaking in tongues can come, uh, uh, some Christians will, most won't. That's that... That's not like Pentecostals or Charismatics. Uh, Some, maybe it's related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, maybe not. But but we just have to be open to the fact that God can still uh, send people who heal and speak in tongues and this kind of thing. And in the mid-'80s, three Dallas Seminary professors who had been professors of mine, friends of mine in a couple of cases, um, went vineyard. And they got fired from Dallas Seminary. And everyone, all three of these guys were influenced by their wives. You read their testimonies. My wife is feeling like, oh, it's not just doctrine. It's such a cold, intellectual thing, this Christianity. I gotta feel something. I gotta have more, more emotion in my Christianity. I just feel so distant from God. And, and so the wives all get into this kind of subjectivity. Well, the same thing happened recently. Uh, right at the end of, uh, news came out about this at the end of April that um, Francis Beckwith who was a professor of theology at uh, Baylor Seminary at the Seminary at Baylor Truth Seminary Baylor University and Francis Beckwith's been around for a long time he's a noted evangelical theologian and apologist has written lots of books on technical theological books on lots of different subjects and is currently or up to that point was the president of the largest association of evangelical theologians, the Evangelical Theological Society. and the last meeting in November, he was elected president. Well, he didn't tell anybody that he was beginning to have reservations about evangelicalism. But due to a particular turn of events, he felt like he had to come out of the closet at the end of uh, April... And so he told everybody that, yes, indeed, it was true that earlier in April he had gone to confession at the local Roman Catholic diocese, and he had confessed his heresy of being an evangelical, and he had received full absolution and was accepted back into the Roman Catholic Church because he had been raised... Uh, as a child he'd been raised Catholic gone through uh, all the different uh, jumped through all the different hoops you have to to be a Catholic and so they gave him absolution and welcomed him back into the Roman Catholic Church and one of the first questions uh, my wife asked me when she heard this well what does his wife think about this see a woman's going to ask that kind of question his wife was leading the way she wasn't raised a Catholic but she was out there you know, 20 yards in front of him saying, I think this is what we need to do. And so he just kind of let her just lead him right along the, the chain of decision making. And so now uh, the Roman Catholic Church is taking out full page ads in newspapers throughout Central and South America saying, major evangelical theologian returns to the true church. So that's what's happened. There's a lot of people who claim that they somehow understand doctrine and theology and it's academic. Just because somebody can go along with a and, and give some sort of verbal uh, affirmation to a doctrinal statement doesn't mean they understand it, even if they have three PhDs by their name. What a world we live in. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to get clarity on a, much, uh, com- a very complex subject and clarity on a much debated subject. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that, that uh, we may know the truth. For as you have said in your scripture, by knowing the truth, that is Bible doctrine, we have genuine uh, freedom. We are not shackled to the superstition, the mysticism, the slavery of religion, or of its opposite atheism. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.